0: When we think about the internet and the history of the internet, what do we think about? Do we think just about North America or more specifically, do we just think about the United States? But what if I told you that 15 years before most people in the United States got online and started using what was called the internet, there were millions of people in France, of all places, who were connected, who were being social, who were buying things online with this government-backed technology. Well, that's what we're talking about today, and we're talking about the book Minitel, Welcome to the Internet, by Julian Myland and Kevin Driscoll. It's important to note for this interview that there are two actual interviews and in one. I was able to interview Julian earlier and prior to the FCC's recent vote on the open internet rules and I was able to interview Kevin after the vote by the FCC. This is New Books and Technology. I'm your host Jasmine McNeely. So the book is Minitel, Welcome to the Internet and I'm here with Julian Myland who's one of the authors of the book, and first, one of the first things we like to do on new books and technology is to get a sense of who we're talking to. So, tell me, who is Julian Mailand?
1: Sure. <laughs> uh, so, I'm am I'm an assistant professor uh, in the media school at Indiana University. Um, I'm uh, I'm a lawyer um, as well, and I do research on uh, internet law and policy. Um, and I try to approach this from a variety of angles, um, including social constructivism, the law, but also um, comparative theory. Uh, I found there's a lot of value in comparing what different countries are doing um, for thinking about where we should take the, the Internet. Um, and so that's kind of the focus of, um, of my research. Um, and as of the topic of the book, uh, Minitel was a, a French network. Um, that started in the early 80s, and I happened to have uh, grown in France, so I was actually a user uh, back back then. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So so why write the book? Well, you know, there's kind of this myth in Silicon Valley that the Internet uh, really started, you know, in the Bay Area, and it's kind of this American-made, Network and that there's nothing else outside of the internet, right? And that uh, online worlds or cyberspace today is kind of the direct descendant of uh, the ARPANET, and that's not true. And um, it's really too bad that uh, internet histories in general uh, and you know the body of of work um, on law and policy on internet law and policy in the U.S. is so U.S.-centric because we can actually learn a lot. From looking at what's been going on in uh, different countries since since the '60s, and so with the book, what we're doing is looking at um, a network that started in the late '70s and ended um, in 2012. Um, and, and the reason we called it "Minitel: Welcome to the Internet" is that the book isn't about talking about Minitel for its own sake; it's about looking at the minute example and figure out what we can learn from that experience uh, to think about um, internet policy for tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is why the book is relevant today, even though the network doesn't exist anymore. Uh, but it's relevant because we're at a crossroad where some very, very important policy decisions have to be made. Uh, Ajit Pai is about to roll out um or cancel net neutrality uh, in a couple of days. Um, and so those experiences that, that we, people went through in, in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s, I think are very, very relevant today for helping us think about things like net neutrality and about platform governance uh, at a time where more and more our lives are mediated by platforms like Facebook or Google or Amazon.
0: Well, you know, you mentioned a lot of things I want to talk to you further about. But one of the first things you mentioned was the very American or U.S.-centric history or mythology that's told about the Internet and online like communities and and sociality. And why do you think that is? Well, I mean, I think it's an
1: easy tendency for people to not look outside of our borders, right? Uh, So that's one, one of the reasons um the second reason i think is that um you know there there might be a, a political tendency for a lot of people to think okay what what went on in europe is irrelevant for us we don't like government we don't like europe and therefore we're not gonna look at what europe does because it's not relevant for us europe or other countries by the way there's been great books written that um you know the internet in russia the internet in uh, China, um, and the other tendency I think is that it's, you know, it's easy for, it's nice in itself satisfying for Silicon Valley to say, hey, we're the middle of the world, we're the center of the world, we invented everything, right? It's kind of nice to pat oneself on the back. Um, so I think that that is the main reason why. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's, let's get into that. The Minitel was a uh, a project of the French government, right? Correct. And just that fact that it was government or uh, government-backed innovation, does that seem to be a a major sticking point when people criticize? Um, Yes. Yes. Yes.
1: And I think there's this idea, you know, in the US, we distrust the government so much relative to other countries that I think a lot of people get the idea that government intervention in itself is bad, right? And then they kind of stop looking there. Um, when you go to conferences like TPRC, which I know you go to, um, or I think you do go, um, you know, people seem to say, okay, Minitel was government. Back, and therefore, it was centralized, it was closed, it was government-controlled, all the content was controlled by the government. But that's not true at all because, in fact, what happened was the government set up the platform, uh, but all the services were privately run. Right? Um, so,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, one of, the, one of the things that struck me is just how advanced Minitel was. So you had the beginnings of e-commerce and chatting and the, the social aspects. But you also had, um, you know, routes for activism, like forerunners for activism that we see happening today. I'm, I'm thinking of the student strike that Min- right. used Minitel. So I wonder if you could talk about that, just like how the Minitel was such a forerunner to all of the things that we perhaps take for granted now sure um
1: so yeah it was, it was an exciting uh technology and you know it's derided today for being so slow uh, but at the time you know computer networks in the u.s were the exact same speeds right because modems were modems um but yeah they were you know i did speak uh in about 92 so before uh most americans had even ever heard of the internet they were about thirty thousand services um, and a lot of these as, as you mentioned were really the kind of the forerunner of of stuff that, that we think you know was invented in Silicon Valley um back in nineteen ninety five. So we have a whole chapter about it. Um and it was pretty fun. So for example, you know, before there was e trade, um you could trade uh stock online, right? Which in the US, in the eighties, very, very few people could do, right? Mm-hmm. Only the very wealthy, right? There's this scene in the Trading Places movie with Eddie Murphy, where the um, the evil bankers are in the back of their car and they're placing trades through their telephone, and that, that was something that very hurt people. Um, you know, before there was before you could order food online back in Paris in the eighties, you could order food for um, you know delivery, uh, immediate delivery. Uh, you could play online games uh, and interactive games. Um, and of course, kind of the most infamous of those services were the chat rooms, right? Um, and a lot of these chat rooms were used and they were, you know, monitored, uh, but it didn't certainly did not prevent activism uh, from taking place. As you mentioned, some of the big student demonstrations in 1986 were organized uh, through those chats, through those chat rooms. So, you know, and they look something similar to uh, Usenet or things like that in the U.S. Um, and, of course, a lot of it was used for um, what's called a pink Minitel, um, which was, you know, a form of sexy, sexy chat. So it wasn't porn because there were no images, but it was kind of sex chat uh, that went from kind of lighthearted uh, masquerade type thing to... Uh, much more hardcore um, chat. So that was a big feature of, of Minitel. And in fact, back in the eighties, the streets of France were covered uh, with ads for those uh, sexy chat rooms. Um, yeah. So it was it was an exciting it was an exciting thing. You know, which which um, if you remember the excitement that we felt in the US during ninety five when people started going on the web. Right, so it was a similar excitement, except uh, ten years before that.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, one of the things we mentioned talk about the chat rooms, and so we get to the idea of community that was um, built and available. Was a community that you could find on Minitel or the various communities? I should say you could find on Minitel. Is that any different than what we see? with Twitter or Tumblr or any of the other social media apps that we have out today?
1: Um, It's hard to tell. I mean, it was certainly different in a number of ways. Um, You couldn't really follow people. I mean, there there was an email system, uh, but other than that, it was kind of instantaneous. You know, whomever was in the chat room was there to chat with. So in that sense... Um it's different from Twitter or Facebook because you don't have, you know, a list of friends. Um but I mean I think certainly in a lot of ways, um it, it it was a precursor to that and so it in a lot of ways it, it resembled it. Um some people um there's a lot of stories of people actually meeting uh other people online and, and then going and dating in real life. So in a lot of ways it's also a precursor to some of the dating apps uh, <laughs> that we use today, except you know people didn't have pictures, so you had to use the power of your words to uh, to lure people <laughs> into actually meeting you.
0: Yeah, yeah. and it was very uh, fraught with peril in case you <laughs> you didn't get the person you thought you were going to get. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> So one of the things we've been talking about with Minitel and in this present day, and you mentioned the FCC and the possible vote uh, coming up soon in the United States. I was wondering, like, if you could talk about ideas of of net neutrality and and some of the debates related to net neutrality and the lessons from uh, Minitel that we could possibly or or that are possibly relevant to our understanding of net neutrality and perhaps the need for net neutrality?
1: Sure. Um, So, you know, in the U.S., it seems that the debate focuses a lot fundamentally around whether or not we want government intervention in networks, right? And opponents of net neutrality... um, Claim that basically any sort of government intervention will slow down the internet, will hinder innovation, right? Which is ironic considering uh, the original internet in the US was paid for by our tax dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, but aside of that, you know, I remember, for example, around the first debate uh, around the neutrality uh, that led to the order, uh, the open internet order, Ted Cruz we did something along the lines of net neutrality is Obamacare for the internet. We don't want an internet operating at the speed of government, right? And that really echoes the arguments of very large uh, internet service providers like Comcast um, or Verizon who, um, you know, wave a red flag and say, look, government intervention was slowed on the internet. Um, well, the Minitel experience shows us that government intervention, if it is targeted and if it, if it is done well, can actually support innovation, right? And so the case of Minitel is, is a case in point for, for showing this. And so in, the, so in the French case, what happened was the government paid for the network, right, the platform, um, basically the pipes that in the U.S. are operated by companies like Comcast and, and Verizon, and then the government said okay pretty much anyone now can connect to those pipes and provide services as long as they are lawful and that really catalyzed private innovation right because the network was there paid for by the french taxpayer but then anyone with a good idea could go and uh promote it and the operator uh because it was the um basically the the phone company Um, the post-telephone and um, telegraph administration, because it was the state, uh, it had to operate as a common carrier. Right? And because it had to operate as a common carrier, as long as your service was lawful, uh, was legal, it couldn't block it or prioritize one over the other. Right? Um, And that is what made innovation possible. Right? So now... When you look at the debate on net neutrality, um, what the Internet order does, the open Internet order that guarantees net neutrality because it classified the Internet service providers as carriers uh, it does pretty much the same thing that the the French system did, which is that it promotes innovation by enabling anyone who wants to provide service over the Internet to do it, without having to pay extra to uh, Comcast or without um, you know, having your service blocked because uh, Comcast or Verizon don't like it or because they want to promote their own service instead. right So the French example shows you that government intervention when it's well done uh, and when it ensures it neutrality actually catalyzes innovation rather than plundering uh, So I think it's a good case study to to show and to rebut the argument um, of conservative politicians and very large conglomerates who say that government intervention will slow down the internet. It's simply not true.
0: One of the um, arguments or points of discussion in the net neutrality debate is that without net neutrality... Uh, certain segments of society, particularly poor people and people of color, marginalized uh, groups, may not have access to information that they otherwise need access to, right? And I thought it's interesting that Minitel uh, was free, that the government gave these to um, users. And so there was no real, in, in that way, there was no real... Um, dichotomy between people who had enough a lot of money and people who didn't and i was wondering if you could talk about the the possible effects that had um that people were kind of on a level playing field as far as access to this innovation
1: sure um so and that's definitely one of the very kind of french characteristics of of that network um In the eighties in the United States, very few people were online because uh, PCs were expensive. Uh, And because of that, very few services were created, right? We never hit that kind of critical mass of users that would then attract a content provider that would then attract more users, right? That didn't happen in the US until 1995. but in France, as you mentioned, uh, the state subsidized um, the system, just like, by the way, the federal government subsidized the Internet uh, by building ARPANET and then NSFNET. Um, so certainly that um, the subsidization, in particular, in the form of free terminals. Right. So as you mentioned, the way it worked is that starting in 1983, uh, you would go to the post office and the post office would give you a free computer it wasn't a very um powerful computer it couldn't really do anything on its own but it could get you online right mm-hmm. so that so it ended up that basically everyone in France even people who couldn't afford PCs uh ended up with a computer in their home and were able to go online so i think that was a great equalizer uh in a sense however um and kind of the opposite side of that, uh, you got to remember that Mintel was very, very expensive, right? Uh, because you had to pay by the minute, so it was free to get a terminal, uh, but then you had to pay by the minute, just like you had to pay in the U.S. You it was also very expensive in the U.S. Um, so, in terms of you know, very active users in the chat rooms, uh, these that demographic was mostly young, rich. Urbanites, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I, you know, I think the equivalent would be uh, in today's life. You know, would be the uh, the Facebook or the Google employees, right? (laughs) Uh, That that gentrify cities like San Francisco at at very rapid rapid pace. Um, So the people used it a lot were that. But you're right. If you didn't use it very much, uh, you still had access to. Uh, lots of information that you couldn't otherwise have had access to because you couldn't afford a PC, right? And as you mentioned, a lot of the marginalized uh, communities that didn't have really anywhere to get together and exchange information uh, became big internet users, right? So for, so, for example, remember it was the 80s, uh, the HIV epidemic was was in full full-blown. Uh, and so the gay community uh, started using Minitel a lot for exchanging information and things like that. And so marginalized communities definitely uh, benefited from, from this quite a bit uh, because they could, you know, get access to information they couldn't get access to, or they could meet with people uh, like them without having to be, you know, doing it in public where, where they might not feel safe about it
0: mm-hmm. okay. so one of the things that we always like to do on new books and technology is allow you to do an elevator pitch that is if you had a minute to tell people why they should read or buy your book what would you say Well, people
1: should read the book because um, we are at a crossroad uh, where the Internet of tomorrow uh, is being determined by today's policy debate. Mm -hmm. Um, And that policy debate has been obfuscated by um, political arguments, uh, by lies, that are repeated over and over again by uh, the very large ISPs like Comcast and Verizon. Um, and in order to debunk uh, these arguments and to think better about neutrality what and what the future of the Internet should be, we have to look outside of our borders. We have to look at history. We have to look at other case studies. Um, and Minitel is a case study that shows you that targeted government intervention, can, when it's well done, uh, support innovation, and that uh, a targeted government intervention in the form of imposing net neutrality uh, actually leads to great innovation.
0: Mm-hmm. Very good. So what's next? Well, I think that the next
1: uh, side of, of net neutrality, uh, one of the really important issues today is uh, think about the governance of platforms uh by platforms i mean electronic systems that mediate our lives right where we meet where we exchange where we buy where uh, we discuss politics uh, where we share our, our lives. so platforms like facebook twitter amazon google um that not only mediate our life, but also get a whole lot of information about us, right? Uh, the question of how these platforms should, if at all, be regulated is very important because, um, you know, if a platform does not have any sort of obligation to act in a public instance, um, then we, then it might become a problem, right? So, um, when the Constitution of the United States was drafted, when the Bill of Rights was drafted, our worry was that the government would, would, would control our lives, right? And so that's why the framers, for example, um, wrote this one thing called the First Amendment that says government cannot in, infringe on your freedom of speech, right? But that's at a time where if you were activists, political activist, you know, a lot of times you would go on a, on a soapbox in a public forum, Right? So it was important to make sure that the government could not infringe on this. And that's why the First Amendment was drafted uh, with, with the government, government intervention in, in mind. But nowadays, uh, where it gets tricky is that our new forum has become an electronic forum. Right, If you're an activist, you're not going to go on your soapbox on the public square. I mean, you, you might, but you're not going to have very good impact, right? You're going to go on Facebook, you're going to go on Twitter. Um, and where that becomes a problem is that these companies, because they're privately held, are not um, subject to the First Amendment and they can do pretty much whatever they want. So, for example, um, Apple um, put pressure from the um, Obama administration, Joe Biden and, and Hillary Clinton back then. Um, banned the WikiLeaks app from its ecosystem. So all of a sudden, overnight, if you're uh, an Apple iPhone user, you can't go on WikiLeaks anymore. Okay? Um, That raises some really serious questions, because when the public forum is now privately operated, uh, if those private corporations are not subject to any sort of regulation that... uh, forces them to act the in public interest, then we're, our society becomes at risk because our freedom becomes, in practice, um, infringed upon. Um, so I'm not saying that the First Amendment should apply to private corporations, but certainly uh, we, we have to think about ways in which the public interest can be taken into consideration. Uh, otherwise, our lives will be Completely controlled by private interest, and that's a problem.
0: Mm-hmm. What's next for you? So, um,
1: I'm actually working on um, a book um, about um, uh, there would be a legal history of the video game industry. Mm. Um, so I'm working on that, and then, of course, um, you know, we have so people are interested in in internet law and policy. I think the next Years are going to be very interesting because things are far from being settled, right? Um, so there's this vote coming up at the FCC, uh, in a couple of days, we'll see what happens. Most likely, uh, they will roll back net neutrality and that will open a flurry of lawsuits. Um, so I think for, for us, and all involved um, in in net neutrality. There's going to be work to do uh, in the, in the next coming years. Mm-hmm. Okay,
0: great. Well, thank you very much for uh, talking to me uh, on this well, new books and very technology. Much for having me on the show. Oh, no problem. I uh, look forward to all the rest of your 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 new work in law and policy and uh, technology as well. Great. Now the interview with Kevin Driscoll. One of the things we always like to do on new books and technology is get a sense of who the author of the book is. So, who is Kevin Driscoll?
2: Well, there's kind of two answers to this question because there's who I am, uh, my scholarly identity, and then how I came to the project. Mm-hmm. And they relate in kind of an unusual way. So, I met my co author, Julian Maland, in grad school, and we both were interested in technology and culture. And policy, we were TAs together, things like that. But the genesis of the book actually came from outside of our scholarly interest. To some extent, was in tinkering and playing around with uh, older telecommunications systems, and it turned out that minitel was really like a fun kind of technology to play with. Mm-hmm. That at the time there were it was not laden with nostalgia, so we were able to acquire lots of old materials and things like that to play with. And as we kind of discover through the book process, it was extremely well documented. So those two things come together to make a really generative context for for play and experimentation. And that was something that kind of drives a lot of my scholarship, but isn't necessarily evident in the scholarly output.
0: Leading up until Minitel, the book, yeah. what kind of things were you writing about or, or studying?
2: Yeah, I'm generally interested in uh, what it's like to live in a world that's kind of saturated, mediated through different sorts of communication and especially computation technologies. So at the time, I was especially interested in social media as a kind of platform for people to gather together and organize politically and how... computers and computer networks can bridge popular culture interests with political action. And so I was interested in people who get together to talk about TV shows on Twitter, then turning that into kind of a network that could become active politically. Um, And so then that all of that work actually pushed me in a historical direction. So my dissertation research was about hobbyist and volunteer run community networks in the 1980s in North America. And that kind of gave me the orientation and some of the skills to work on the Minitel project.
0: Mm -hmm. So you you just talked about political activism and some of the platforms. And I think, you know, Minitel offers kind of a, a, a perspective on that. One of the things I found interesting was like first that the minitel existed because I didn't know it existed, right. <laughs> but also that it was used. It was, I guess, advanced enough that people were able to form collectives and organize for activism.
2: Mm. I think the minitel case, as with a lot of cases of computer networks in the 1980s, really challenges our expectations of what it means for a communication technology to be advanced. Mm-hmm in the sense that it gave me appreciation for kinds of systems that simply carry messages reliably among people across space. And in that sense, then, most of the 20th century, we've had a variety of different networks and systems that people used to meet the social needs that they had at the time, whether that was CB radio or community FM stations or just telephone trees among activists. And the kind of cool thing about it is once you start looking at it in that way, then you see how we never quite abandoned these technologies. They don't move in like a progress of abandoning and adopting, but they just uh, kind of gather and aggregate over time. So the same uh, can say activist networks that might have used Minitel or dial up bulletin board systems. We're also still, of course, organizing Face to face and calling each other on the phone and making newsletters and Xeroxing them and things like that. Mm -hmm. So these systems like always are building out of the existing context and adding on to the practices that are already in place.
0: Now, one of the things that strikes me, as I said earlier, that I hadn't even heard of the minitel, And I think one of the the mythologies is that (laughs) everything starts in the United States. And yes, I wonder if you could like discuss that with respect to the Internet. And Absolutely. Media.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I had some experience as a primary school teacher before coming to grad school. And my some of my classes were called computer science. Uh, and for a middle school student, that can also be a kind of a media literacy class. So we would talk about histories of the Internet and where these systems come from. And you find a consensus around a very narrow and, I think, very unsatisfying story about how we would come to live in a world where so much of our economic and cultural and private personal, even sexual activity is mediated through networks. Mm. Like the story of networks like ARPANET gives us so little, it has like little explanatory power for how we could be (laughs) in this world. Whereas Minitel you do see people meeting and forming businesses and personal relationships and sexual relationships through computers. So it actually fills in this, this gap. Um, The interesting part of it is why that story hadn't been so better known outside of France. And I think the kind of national or linguistic boundary isn't enough to explain it. Instead, it really rests on how the people in the United States and then exported to the world came to know the idea of the Internet in the 1990s. And it was important that that story had been kind of sutured together with a story about private entrepreneurship and deregulation and uh, light touch, government control, things like that. And the Minitel story doesn't fit nicely into that pattern. So it quite easily fell out of the moment of grand kind of debut of uh, internet and computer network mediated communications in towards the late 1990s.
0: An important feature or perhaps of the Minitel is that it was a government sponsored platform slash the actual hardware was given
2: out. Yeah. Oh, people.
0: yeah. And I think even in, in this current debate, in this current era, we're in the United States at least, we're debating things like net neutrality and people will assert perhaps an error that, you know, the government should never be involved with the Internet, that you had this really successful platform that was a, you know, government – backed, perhaps, it would be a, like, a mm-hmm. good way to explain it, mm-hmm. thing for the people.
2: Yeah. that I mean, the way that you kind of conclude that observation that it's for the people is really important. That is particularly at the time, you could imagine the government making these decisions in the interest of the public, which for the time in France could be synonymous in some sense with like an identity around a nation that they could feel themselves as a nation on the precipice. There has a fear of a, a national decline on the global stage. And so kind of like crisis action could be taken to make some big leap forward. And in a way, the Minitel is one of many grand projects undertaken by the state to try to push forward at the end of the 20th century. But in the bigger scheme of things, it it kind of inquires provokes us to think about this relationship of private and public, of state and corporate action in the development of new communication systems. And the Minitel case uh, for us was really interesting because it challenged any sort of all or nothing dichotomies between these different poles that you couldn't think Minitel as all government run, or you couldn't think the internet as all private. Once you start scratching away at the actual function of how the technologies work, it reveals itself to be hybrid. And you have to hold both in mind. And it for me, this is really productive because then when you think about policymaking or the, try to imagine futures that you want to live in, you can imagine them as balances and you can see how slight touches can shift balances in one direction or the other versus the very simplistic way of thinking of things as like, Government bad, Silicon Valley good, or even vice versa.
0: Right. So, I wonder if we could talk about the uh, vote last week. So, last week Mm. we had the Federal Communications Commission voting to repeal uh, the open internet rules that were established in 2015. Um, And I was wondering if what kind of, I don't know, lessons we can garner from uh, the Minitel, the Minitel project in France. That could possibly be guiding or offer guidance for us as we, you know, continue to debate whether or not uh, to have some sort of uh, regulation related Mm -hmm. to accessing of information and just, you know, being able to people being able to get on the Internet.
2: Yeah, I think that a lot of the advocates for repealing the, the Title II rules around Uh, how we govern broadband internet service providers in the United States are based on a story about the past that doesn't really bear out in any sort of empirical truth. And the story that is told is that up until some recent period, the government had no role in the regulation of internet service providers. And that's why the internet grew so well. And isn't it like a perfect demonstration of the free market? And What's so kind of strange about that is if you had used the Internet during any period of that time, you either plugged your computer into the phone network and dialed a phone number, or you plugged it into a cable TV network, or you connected to some kind of radio tower, you were always using networks that came before the Internet in order to access it. And there's no debate that the FCC has some... Uh, responsibility to regulate our use of those telecommunications networks. And what's interesting about it is that from an FCC point of view, they're concerned about two kind of values that are in tension. And on one hand, there is stability and reliability. And on the other hand is innovation, the creation of new services and and kind of private exploitation of the infrastructures. And The stability, reliability part falls out of the kind of myth of the internet as this like radically unregulated system because the internet grew because we had this incredibly stable, reliable telephone network pre-existing in the United States. So most of the early internet is carried over telephone wires that were laid to carry voice phone calls, not to carry data at all. We kind of retrofit them and really through some ingenious engineering, we're able to reuse these telephone wires to carry data. And once I started thinking about the telephone network as a precondition for the internet, it reveals the hybridity of the internet in the United States. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And the Minitel case helped me think about that, that, that a lot because it was the failing French telephone network that prompted the creation of Minitel. That France had one of the worst telephone networks in Europe at the start of the 1970s. And so they endeavored to create a much better telephone network and in doing so it created the possibility of adding information services and data networks and things into the mix, like alongside growing the overall telephone network. So there again, we see this balance between public interest and and private exploitation. And so, you know, Julian and I kind of bounced that around a lot thinking about how to describe this. And we started thinking about Minitel as a case of public infrastructure, for private innovation that by and large, the state only provided the platform for creating services. It didn't actually create any of the services. And something sort of similar happened around the beginnings of deregulation in the US where the opening up of the telephone network enabled a lot of private innovation around it, like fax machines and answering machines, dial up bulletin boards and early internet service providers. But it wasn't that we like radically tore it all apart, there was still a balance. And the balance was about how much are you willing to sacrifice a little bit of the stability and reliability to get the innovation on the other, on the other hand.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so it's clear that there's some role to play for a third party that we would call a state to regulate the activity here. And that is towards the continued production of new uh, services and things like that. The other kind of component of the net neutrality story that I find so interesting is that the net neutrality story gets kind of applied up and down this stack of layers of activity, whether it's like actually putting wires onto telephone poles all the way up to how Facebook or Netflix behaves in the marketplace. And it's clear the FCC has some role at some point in that like gigantic mountain of activity. And maybe not at all levels, but to say that they have no role is kind of seems disingenuous to me. Mm -hmm. Here's a background story that I think helps me think think through this. We know that towards the end of the 1990s, there was a lot of uh, support for the production of new fiber optic networks. And one way to imagine the world that we would live in now is that we would all have fiber optic cables to our homes. That's not the world we live in. Instead, we have like jury rigged networks that use coaxial cable that was laid to carry television content. Mm -hmm. And that's working pretty well for a lot of people. And the cable networks have been really good at making that work. But as a result, there were there are dark fiber networks in all these different parts of the country that just lay under the ground. In some cases, they would serve rural populations who are otherwise neglected or it would be hard to profit from in a purely free market situation. And so it's clear that the system works well for people within who are in particular, socioeconomic and geographic locations relative to the whole population and where state regulation steps in is to do that to take care of the full system, to see it all in a kind of holistic singular sense that everybody ought to be able to be connected in some way. And the, example I always think back on is it's not by natural consequence that everyone in the U.S. could rent an apartment or buy a house and expect there to be phone jacks in the wall and expect to be able to have a phone number of their own. And yet we arrived at that situation by the early 1980s. What circumstances did it take to get to that point? And if that's something that we came to value, which did have a lot of positive consequences for the development of, uh, corporations and private enterprise, what's something analogous to that for the future going forward? What's something like a home phone number that we want to provide to people as a baseline that all, uh, families and small and businesses would be able to expect to have as we go forward.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And I think that in the case of Minitel, there was something similar to that, which is they wanted everyone to have home telephone, uh, access. And if that was the goal, then why not? You also could access this information service and the kind of hybridity of the network itself is that it used the telephone line to get you into the digital network. So they also didn't bring, um, you know, a packet switched connection to every home in France. The first step of your connecting to Minitel was to pick up the handset of your home telephone and dial into the local gateway very similar to how we would have accessed a private internet service provider 10 or 15 years later.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, Minitel really didn't end till 2012, although there weren't obviously updates <laughs> happening for yeah. a long time. But I was wondering, are there lessons from the perhaps decline/end of, of Minitel that all kinds of platforms and networks can
2: and can take and and use? It's really provocative to think about the longevity of the network,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, from a just simply hours per month sort of measure. The peak of Minitel is in the early 1990s, and yet it lasts for another two decades. Mm-hmm. And that was a topic of like fascination for people in France at the time. When Minitel finally ended, there were all of these articles in the newspaper like, we found the person in town that still uses Minitel, and we interviewed them. You can kind of imagine that human interest story. So they send the photographer out to the farm and take pictures of this farmer with his Minitel, like propped on the back of the pickup. And um, there is a there is a humorous story that circulated a couple of years ago where um, two teens like robbed a bodega uh-huh. and they were shouting to the guy like, let us have the the safe. And he pointed to the back room and they ran in and grabbed his Minitel terminal and ran out of the bodega. And it was like a nationwide, you know, weird news story where they're saying the kids today don't even know what the Minitel is. It's only been closed for three years. Um, so there's this longevity to Minitel that confounds our expectations of technologies being successive that like, a kid today has no idea what a modem sounds like. In fact, they do. And there are still uh, infrastructures throughout the United States that depend on modems and telephone dial, up, dial ups, connections and things like that. So the longevity of it, I think, is really interesting on a temporal level, but also on the scale of usage. Like, What do we think of as being mass, as being mass media? And for example, in the United States... The use of broadband connections only overtook dial-up connections um, in about 2005, so just over 10 years ago. So in some ways, the internet of 10 or 15 years ago is almost like a different technology from the thing we use today, where people are connected through ubiquitous wireless broadband connections and things like that. But we're able to hold it in our minds as one thing. And so for Julian and I, we've tried to expand that even one step more and think of the period of time inclusive of Minitel and the present as being like one long era of building and diffusing these network communication technologies. And then we're able to see it as we're a transnational socio-technical phenomenon that's trying to deal with problems simultaneously in different ways at all times. Mm -hmm. And for some people, New technologies come, and they don't actually meet any new needs, so they never adopt them. So for the person who is comfortable using Minitel and likes to go and chat with people in the chat rooms using the Minitel terminal, some of them never stopped. It was satisfying. It it The new way of doing that didn't necessarily hold any appeal. And I, for me, that's just so exciting to think about how... These things we make, they linger on and they have new lives that are really unpredictable to us. I should say also that Minitel is a medium for the state to connect to private citizens. So Mm -hmm. there's some state services that you had to access through Minitel and they had to come up with some funny workarounds in order to continue to do that. So there was a period of time where you could download a Minitel emulator for your home computer. And so, when you had to go to use a Minitel service, you would like fire up your virtual Minitel in your home computer and then connect to Minitel through the internet. So, going in this like very strange recursive loop of telecommunication history in one moment to just register for classes or something like that. Hmm.
0: Wow. So one of the questions I, I have asked before on this show, and I think it bears asking again, particularly with this technology, the Minitel, is uh, go to Langdon Winner and ask the question, do artifacts have politics? And do you think that this hardware slash platform, the Minitel, had some kind of you know political ideology inherent in the system or in the way that it was
2: used. No doubt the Minitel is a political technology. I mean, just no doubt about it. It, What does it represent to take this, this machine, this strange box, and place it in your home, in your domestic space where you live and work and spend time with your family and things like that? That meant something significant. And the ambitions of the project to connect France first, also reflect a political ideology of na- of the maintenance of national identity. And that, I would say, is for better and worse, it reflects a way of thinking that was very inward facing that had was reflected in the structure of the network itself and how all connections and activities passed through some publicly managed part of the infrastructure on its way to another, private end server on the other side. And these all reflected a way of thinking that was consistent with longer traditions in kind of like uh, French political thinking. And I think that when you study how the networks get organized and how they grow throughout kind of the global information infrastructure, you often see reflections of the prevailing political ideologies of the those places and times. Something that uh, is striking about the Minitel case is how it is taken up in the present in nostalgia and by younger people. So for example, about 10 years ago, there was a, like an elect retro electro band in France called Minitel Rose Mm. that was like making reference. It was an eighties band that had a name of Minitel. So Minitel for, for people living in France is an an icon, like a symbol of a way of being in the eighties, the way that an American might think of like, Zach Morris's cell phone or something like that. These like iconic devices that you might have actually not used that much. Like most people in France were required to use Minitel at least once in a while, but only some people adopted it to the full extent of it being a kind of social media system Mm -hmm. because it was expensive and it was weird. And if you didn't know anyone else who was using it, you may not have thought to, to use it yourself. Um, but it represented a kind of building and making that was French that was like oriented towards the experience of being French at this time. And for me as an American scholar, that's been the part of it. That's that I've had to really do approach comparatively to think about think events and artifacts that we see and compare them against things that I've seen in other cases in order to really wrap my head around them.
0: Hmm. So one of the things we always like to do on new books and technology is the, what we call the elevator pitch. So if there's someone out there who just, I don't know how, but tuned in just right now and they want to know why they should purchase or read your book or, you know, preview it on, you know, Google preview or whatever, (laughs) perhaps you can take one minute and tell them why read Minitel, Welcome to the Internet.
2: Yeah. I mean, the way that we often approach it, it depends on your audience, right? Like there's a lot, there's a lot of curiosity in where these things come from. And the image that always comes to mind for me is somehow like 15 years before most people in the U S were even thinking the word internet. There are millions of people in France who are using it every day to buy movie tickets, to flirt with other people, to find jobs, to do research, to carry out uh, just their own personal hobbies and pursuits. And how could it be that on one hand, this system existed in the first place and on the second hand, you've never heard of it? It tells a story that's both about technology and the production of history, how we come to know things or not know them about the past.
0: Sounds good to me. Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So what's next for
0: you, Kevin?
2: Well, this Minitel project came alongside some ongoing research I had been doing about uh, hobbyist-driven computer networks. And so my Main project now is about a parallel story taking place in North America, which is here we have um, popular computer networking through dial-up bulletin board systems. And dial-up BBSs are very local, they're very regional. Many of the people that use them know one another face to face. And there were over 100,000 dial-up bulletin board systems in North America, including in um, parts of the Caribbean where people were building these community-oriented networks to trade files and chat with each other and things like that. And I think of the 100,000 systems all happening at the same time as a period of like crazy experimentation where all these people are trying to figure out what it means to to live and be among strangers online at the same time. And those folks end up being kinds of chaperones for the rest of us in the 1990s. They are the ones that... Introduce their friends family and neighbors to what it means to go online and what kind of pleasures and uh, Promises you might find by doing so and that role of kind of the everyday person in bringing the internet into popular culture hasn't really been Documented very well and yet we have lots of evidence of it and many of the people are still around to talk to So that's what I've been working on recently
0: Sounds cool and hopefully you come back on new looking technology when that ah that would be cool (laughs) great well thank you for coming on the show
2: thank Um, you so much
0: this has been new books and technology have a happy holidays